You want me to talk first? <laughs> As I'm still eating. Good <laughs> <laughs> <Give> move, <me five. laughs> Thank you all for coming tonight. I wanted to uh, brought you here tonight uh, and talk about Amway. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like one of my last interventions, but it's better than that. Deb and I work very differently. Deb reads verbatim. Not really. I talk for hours about just nothing. <laughs> just, just rambling about what you're wearing, about what I felt I should have worn, or what address I should have written. I... <laughs> I'm just trying to find my notes so I can remind myself what I'm doing. And I am going to turn the microphone on just because I turned it on. So, because we have it. So. And we're going to hope it works. Here we go. Awesome. So, good evening to everyone and thank you for coming to the Geelongdale Museum and our latest offering in the Dawn of Crime series, The Colour of Crime by Roy. <laughs> um, Roy asked me to say a few words tonight, but for anyone who knows me, that will be very difficult and I apologise for the history lesson in advance. Uh, for those who don't know, my name is Deb Robinson and I'm one of the managers, along with Rob, and probably the chief historian here for the Geelong Jail. Uh, I have a very long background with history research, about 30 odd years plus, not that I'm admitting my age. Uh, <laughs> enough my story, we want to talk about the stories of this fantastic building. So the Geelong Jail dates back to 1848. So that was when New South Wales government decided to give the first money over for the building of this particular jail. Now it wasn't the first jail of Her Majesty's Jail Geelong here. Uh, we had another one at South Geelong, which is down on the corner of Ballyang and Yarra Streets. It consisted initially of four slab huts and it was then replaced in 1841 with freestone that had been quarried from the local Barwon River. Now these buildings took up the watch house, the courthouse and the police buildings. It was also the place where we had the last remaining stocks in use here in Victoria before they were gotten rid of in 1854. Now this building started to be built as I said in 1848 uh, and it wouldn't be completed until 1864 but we had the first prisoners moved in here in 1853. Now the first areas that were built was the west wing uh, and the first two levels. There was 38 cells and the initial intake of prisoners was just 18 people. So we had 12 men and six women that were brought in from the local courts. That was after the Sheriff Robert Reid had to declare the jail open after Governor Latrobe forgot to do it when he went back to Melbourne after inspecting the building. But never mind, here we are. Uh, it's had many roles through its years. So it was used as a um, Male and female prison, so for maximum security prison. So in the early years, we had male and females. We had females here up till about 1900, after which they would go over to uh, Coburg, uh, to the female penitentiary, which was part of Pentridge. Uh, men have been here right up until it closed in 1991. In 1864, after the passing of the Neglected Children's Act, uh, we had an industrial school in this end of the building, whilst we still had the male and female prisoners down that end. So the Myers Street Industrial School took over the north, south and east wings, uh, and they modified all these cells to be able to take up to about 192 young ladies, so aged between 3 and 16, where they would uh, try to teach them skills to be proper Victorian ladies rather than be carousing out on the streets drunk. After that, it became a, um, a hospital jail, and that's what it was for the majority of its life. So from 1877, we had all of the prisoners from all of the other jails who were sick, old, dying, decrepit, disabled 
in some form. They would be sent here. And the reason they were sent here is it was thought that the, um, the proximity to the sea would uh, help them to recover and be beneficial for them. It didn't work. We have approximately 275 deaths up until 1925 in this building, uh, mostly from disease, uh, some by suicide, some by hangings, which we'll talk about in a little bit more. Now, I did forget to mention that in the early days, this uh, jail was um, based under the Pentonville system. Now, that was what a lot of the, uh, the 12 colonial jails, which were the original jails to be built here in Victoria, uh, were based on. And it was a system that came out of England that promoted basically um, punishment and religion and silence as part of its reformation practices. And for that reason, it was an incredibly brutal system. So if you can imagine looking at the size of some of these cells, the men would have to spend up to 22 hours a day in these cells, with very short periods being allowed out to have exercise or something similar. In the very early days, if you were allowed out of your cell, you would also be forced to wear a silence mask, and that was so that nobody knew who you were. If you were passing down the corridor and somebody else came the opposite direction, you were expected to turn and face the wall until they passed by. Very brutal system. Now, if you remember too that I said we had women in here, which meant we also had children, but it was a silent prison, and you can just imagine what that would have been like. The youngest prisoner on record I found prior to the introduction of the Neglected Children's Act was a two-year-old who was imprisoned in his own right, um, which is really, really sad. But that was because of the gold rush, people would disappear off, uh, and of course the high mortality rate as well. So we'd end up with lots of children left on the streets. And that was what the Neglected Children Act was supposed to take care of. But afterwards, a hospital jail, it returned to being a male prison. Uh, it uh, was a reformatory prison in the early 20s. Uh, and then in 1942, it became the eighth Australian detention barracks for the military. So we had um, prisoners from all sorts of, uh, all sorts of the military, arms of the military. We had the army, the uh, air force, the navy. We even had some of the overseas prisoners. Uh, overseas servicemen. Uh, we had 192 SAS or soldiers under sentence here and you would think they'd be a little less troublesome, but not so. They actually managed to stage one of the largest breakouts in, in Victorian jail history with 22 of them going over the wall at once in 1945 uh, and they took quite a few weeks to be able to collect them all back up. One of the, uh, <laughs> the interesting parts of that escape is the fact that it was a Geelong home game and football is very good here in Geelong, uh, very passionate about our football here in Geelong and because of the traffic the military police were unable to get through very easily so a lot of them managed to make it all the way to Melbourne. But we're here to talk about the stories and this building has many, many stories that have been etched into the fabric of its building. Uh, it has, it's an example of the social welfare and, and societal values uh, that have reflected from outside, inside these walls as well. The range of crimes that people could be committed for in the early days would completely change over the years depending on society's values. As I said in the you know, pre-1900, many of our prisoners here were mostly vagrants or people that had no other means of support, so they would be sentenced to a lot of time in here. There's one lady we know of who was released from this prison after serving a month's sentence and was found at eight months pregnant sleeping in a cardboard box in an abandoned house. And as an act of kindness, the magistrate decided to give her 12 months imprisonment uh, as a vagrant, just so that she had somewhere to have some sort of care and support while she actually gave birth. Uh, unfortunately, her child only survived for five weeks. 
so, but one of our prisoners, and one of the ones I think Roy's going to talk about a little bit tonight too, is Arthur Skerritt, who was uh, one of the prisoners here. Um, I started looking to Skerritt's story actually quite a few years ago when we were still doing murder tours. We used to go to the location of where the murder happened that Skerritt was apparently responsible for, the murder of uh, the shopkeeper John uh, Taylor in Fitzroy. Now, after he was convicted of the murder, he was sentenced initially to Pentridge. He would come down here to Geelong in 1935, initially for about seven years, then he went back to Pentridge for a little bit, and then eventually he came back here until the end of his life. Now, unfortunately for Arthur Skerritt, he would pass away within these walls. He died of a heart attack here in 1953. And that was despite, since about 1946, he had continually attempted to be released on good behaviour. And reading his criminal case file with the comments from the governor, um, you can actually see a fair bit of the racism floating through those records where, because of the colour of his skin, he was deemed to be uh, not trustworthy, very unscrupulous, that if he was released, he would return immediately to a life of crime. He really wasn't given a chance. Uh, and so, unfortunately, he remained here until the very, very end of his life. And that's not an unusual story. Um, you know, we have many prisoners of many different colours, creeds, races that have passed through the doors here. Uh, and some of them have been treated well, some of them have not. And that's just part and parcel, unfortunately, of it is. Uh, but Skerritt's just one of the stories here. As I said, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of stories that we could tell you, and I could probably stand up here and talk for hours and hours and hours, but we won't do that tonight. So I'm going to finish up here <laughs> and pass over to Roy, and Roy can tell us a lot more about his book, The Colour of Crime, the latest in the Dawn of Crime series. Thank you, Deb. That's a... <laughs> Deb's one of those trap memories that I could listen to forever. I'm fiddling with... Um... 